Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Well, let's see, it's been two weeks since we were in Hosea, but I know right where we left off. We are in Hosea 9. I want to say thank you again to Tom for teaching last week. I enjoyed his message and got all sorts of positive feedback, and people enjoyed it. And then I spoke to my friend Conrad, my friend Conrad, and he he said to me, Tom's been blessed with the the gift of brevity. (laughs) And I don't know if that was a compliment for Tom or a warning for me. I don't really know which way. Perhaps a suggestion for me. I don't know which way that goes. So so let's go to point number one. Uh, Point number one, it is with some degree of sadness that I must inform you all that I can no longer pick on Micah about my chair. Because yesterday, he and Kellen delivered the chair. And the chair is now in my living room. Uh, I sat in it today while I did some reading. And the chair, as it will henceforth be known, the chair has that most elusive and attractive of all furniture qualities. It induces sleep. Yeah, I know. It's a wonderful thing. You just kind of sit back into all that cuddly leather. And, oh, it's just a, well, I'll put my feet up. It has a remote control. And my feet go up. And, well, I'm, I'm reading. I'll, I'll sit back a little. And then the book hits my lap, and I'm out like a light. So thank you all very much for the birthday gift. I appreciate it very, very much. But now I have nothing to pick on Micah about. So I will either have to find some new grudge to hold against Micah or find a new target. Let's stick with Micah. Let's stick with Micah. Okay. All right. (laughs) Hosea 9, turn there. God is continuing to lay out his case against Israel, in particular Ephraim, the northern tribes at this point. I told you two weeks ago that as Hosea is prophesying, the first wave of deportees, particularly from the tribe of Naphtali, have been taken into the Assyrian captivity. And so over the course of the next 10 years of Israel's history, there are these skirmishes kind of across the Jordan between the Arameans, the Assyrians, and Israel culminating in what is known as the Assyrian captivity when the vast majority of folk in the northern ten tribes are taken into Assyria, taken into bondage. But there is, at that same time, a certain number of people who made their way south. Some went south into Egypt, some went south into Judah, but the majority of the people in the northern tribes end up in the Assyrian captivity. And that's what God is about to talk about in chapter 9 of Hosea. He is about to be very specific and name Egypt and name Assyria. And this is before it's happened. And yet he is telling them exactly who it is that he is going to utilize in order to punish them. And here again, we see the magnificent sovereignty of God played out in human history because God takes credit for the fact that the Assyrians conquer the Israelites. The Israelites are his chosen people, his chosen elect nation, the people he has covenanted with. They are the descendants of Abraham. God has made an unconditional covenant with Abraham, and then he's made that conditional law covenant with national Israel, codifying them as a nation at Mount Sinai. And no other nation has this relationship or these advantages, only Israel. And Paul talks about that in the book of Romans and talks about, well, then what advantage has the Jew? And he says, much in every way, because he does have the promises, the prophets, the covenants. 
he does have this relationship, long-standing history with God. So Israel is undeniably God's chosen nation, God's elect people, but he is also going to correct them. He's going to punish them. What he's not going to do is lose them. Because as we talked about on Sunday morning, Jesus said, if a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one wanders off, won't he leave the ninety and nine and go and find the one that he's lost and come back and all his friends celebrate with him because he'll say, this sheep was lost and I went and got it. I found it. I brought it back. And why does the shepherd do that? Well, because it's his sheep. And because it belongs to him, he won't let it go. Same thing with Israel. And so what I've been trying to show you for uh, weeks and weeks and weeks here is that Israel's guilt is undeniable. And God is going to punish Israel for their guilt. But God's faithfulness to his promises and his covenants is equally undeniable. And therefore, God is going to ultimately restore national Israel. And I think that in studying this, as we've been working our way through the Old Testament, and especially reading how God deals with Israel, we've learned a great deal about the nature and the character of God. That should be very, very reassuring to us. Because so much of what Israel does, so much of what we read about Israel, is the very personification of what human beings without the Spirit of God do, and how they act, and what they're like. And so it's very interesting to read how God, despite dealing with sinful, rebellious, stiff-necked people, nevertheless remains faithful to his word. And so there are people, the New Covenant says, there are people who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life since before the foundation of the world. And when God encounters those people, they are rebellious, stiff-necked, God-hating sinners. That's how they are by nature. They come out of the womb speaking lies, and they grow up sinful people in a sinful world, doing the sinful things that sinful people do. And yet, because God is consistent with his own promises to himself and to his son, he will nevertheless deal with and save and redeem and restore and bring those people to himself. And the church at large agrees, they may not agree with the predestinary before the foundation of the world stuff, but they agree that when God encounters people, he's encountering sinners. That's fundamental to Christianity, that Jesus saves sinners. And that is exactly the theology that we're discovering in the Old Testament. The same God being the same way, being just as faithful, in dealing with people who he has chosen, who are stiff-necked and rebellious and hard-hearted and difficult and sinful and depraved, even uses that word, they're corrupt, and yet God remains faithful. So I argue time and time again that if you can prove that God abandons Israel, that God gives up on Israel because of their sin, because of their breaking of his law, because of their rebellion, Well, then I don't know how you argue in the New Testament that God will be faithful to us. Because every one of us are as guilty as Israel. But the reason that we are saved and redeemed is because we've been bought with the blood of a new covenant. And that is an unconditional covenant, as sure and secure and firm as the Abrahamic covenant. So... Every time you see God establishing unconditional covenants, a covenant that he establishes within himself or with his son, where human beings have no part in the establishment of the covenant, then human beings have no ability or capability to destroy that covenant because human beings weren't party to the covenant to begin with. Abraham couldn't wreck the Abrahamic covenant because Abraham was asleep when God passed through the animals. You and I can't wreck the new covenant because it was established at Calvary with the blood of Christ and now is a done deal, which is why that language of names being written in the Lamb's book of life since before the foundation of the world is so very, very important. God chose particular people, redeemed particular people, sent his son to die for those particular people the same way he chose Israel and didn't choose Pygmies in Borneo. That was a random group, wasn't it? 
didn't choose the Australians or the Eskimos or the, or the Egyptians or the Assyrians. He didn't choose any of those groups. He chose the Israelites the same way that he chose the people who are ultimately part of his body, part of his bride, the church. Same God working the exact same way. And I don't understand the mental gymnastics that some theologians do to say all of that is true in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, once Israel rebelled, God said, well, never mind then. I'm giving up on you. Which is tantamount to God denouncing his own unilateral, unconditional covenant with Israel that he made all by himself. And then said, never mind, my word's not right, my word's not true, my word's not good, you can't count on it. I have no confidence in a God like that. I have no confidence if you can prove to me that God is done with Israel because of what Israel did. Because then it's just a short leap to, well, then God can be done with you because of what you did. But if he's making unconditional covenants that are based in his electing grace, and that are founded and secured in his unchanging nature, then you can have confidence, and so can Israel. When he said, I talked to Israel and said, I betrothed you to me forever. Mm -hmm. You know, I actually have a book at home, Gladys, since you said that. I have a book at home where a, a reformed writer argues that the words forever and everlasting and election in the Old Testament don't mean what they mean in the New Testament. That's what he says. I'm not joking. He, he comes to the conclusion that because God has turned his back on Israel and wants nothing more to do with Israel, because he's one of those church Israel replacement guys, and because the church now is getting the promises that God promised to Israel, and because the church is now spiritual Israel and all that, then all those places, like what Gladys is talking about, where God talks to Israel about forever, this land is yours forever, these promises of covenants that last forever, he said, well, then it can't mean forever, because we know that God didn't keep it forever. And if God had meant forever and then didn't keep it, then God's hypocritical and lying, so clearly the word doesn't mean what we think it means. I know, you have to duct tape your head closed or your head will explode because it's just so frustratingly illogical. All right, so at the beginning of chapter 9 of Hosea, we see the very typical human characteristic that I talked about. This is one of the outgrowths of human pride and human ego. Not only is Ephraim deeply depraved, as God has said several times in setting up his case against them. But then he accuses them of celebrating it. But isn't that exactly what humans are like? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You see people arguing in favor of their own depravity and celebrating it. Mardi Gras. <laughs> or pro-abortion politics. Gay pride parades. I mean, all of that is the celebration of depravity. And the Bible even talks about it, that not only do sinners sin, not only do they rebel, but they take pleasure in others who do it too. This is just real typical human nature, power in numbers. We think it's, it's one thing if I do it alone, but if I do it and get some other people to do it with me, then it must not be as bad. In fact, if we can get together as a nation and just vote on it and change some rules and some laws and we just codify our sin, then maybe it's not as bad. Maybe it's not as sinful. Well, that's exactly what Ephraim was doing. So God starts right out at verse 1 saying, Do not rejoice, O Israel, with exaltations like the nations, like the Gentiles. You're different. You're a different people. I've chosen you. I've given you my law. I've given you standards that I haven't given anybody else. I've revealed myself to you. I'm sending you prophets. I've given you a land. I've made these promises to you. And yet you not only sin, but you exalt like the Gentiles do in your depravity. What does that depravity look like? Because you have played the harlot forsaking your God. Not only had they forsaken God and gone into their harlotries chasing after other gods that are not gods, 
Not only were they worshiping on every high hill and in every grove, but they also had their golden calves. So they were deep into idolatry and exalting in it, celebrating in it, so that there was no longer any distinction between Israel, God's people, and the nations around them. They were all doing the same thing. And God actually expects a difference between his people and the world. We're not supposed to be like the world, not supposed to act or think or behave like the world. And so he says, do not rejoice, O Israel, with exaltations like the nations. For you have played the harlot, forsaking your God. You have loved, the NASB throws in the extra word, a harlot's earnings, so that we understand the kind of earnings. But you have loved earnings on every threshing floor. Basically what that means is... Usually in an agricultural culture like this, a woman who would prostitute herself would do it for food. She would do it for grain. She would do it. And so harlots on the threshing floor was kind of a, a common thing. So God then says, that's what Israel's like. For their own protection, for their own food, they've gone chasing after harlots. But then he says in verse 2, the threshing floor and the wine press will not feed them. And the new wine will fail them. This is actually a resonating theme. If you go back to the previous chapter, two weeks ago we read chapter 8, verse 7. For they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind, and the standing grain has no heads. It yields no grain. And should it yield, strangers would swallow it up. So God is already telling them that one of the first results of their rebellion against him and chasing after foreign gods is that the God who's actually in charge, the God who actually feeds them, the one who is in control of the rain, the one who does produce the grain, he's going to make sure they go hungry. So there's an immediate result of their chasing after foreign gods, which is you've given up on your God and he's the God who provides everything. So God is going to start taking things away from them. And ultimately, the thing he is going to take away from them is himself, his own presence. We're going to see that as we continue through this chapter and it's where I get that notion that the most obvious genuine demonstration of the wrath of God or that a people are under judgment is that God removes himself from them. And when God removes himself from any person or people, they don't get better. They can't help but get worse. And so God is taking things from them, taking food from them. He's going to take away their freedom. He's going to take away their land and then ultimately remove himself away from them. That's what real judgment looks like. The threshing floor and the wine press will not feed them, and the new wine will fail them. They will not remain in the Lord's land, but Ephraim will return to Egypt, and in Assyria they will eat unclean food. Okay, we're going to talk about the unclean food Assyria thing in just a moment. But let's start with this notion of Ephraim returning to Egypt, because this is actually one of the judgments that God told Israel would befall them if they didn't keep his rules, if they didn't keep his law. After he redeemed them out of Egypt and brought them to their new land, before they entered the land, Moses said, and if you don't keep the law, He'll send you back to Egypt. Now, ironically, of course, they in their depravity, every time things went bad, every time they got hungry or got thirsty, they went, I wish we were in Egypt. And God's ultimately going to give them what they want. Well, then you can go back to Egypt. Let's take a look at it. Turn to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 28. And we'll start at verse 58. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 28, 58. And then we'll be back to Hosea. Now what I'm looking to demonstrate to you here is that these things that are falling out to Ephraim are no surprise to God. You saw a few weeks ago when we looked at the Song of Moses, that before Moses died or was taken, he went up into the hills, he's just gone 
Before that happened, he actually had them memorize a song that included the fact that they would go into the land and then they would chase their gods and then God would drive them out of the land. And Moses told them all that before they even went in. He prophesied all that. And the objective behind the song being passed down generation to generation was that when those things began to fall out, they should have remembered the song of Moses and they'd been reciting it and teaching it to their children so that what was happening to them wouldn't have been a surprise. It should have been a demonstration to them that God was still faithfully doing what God does, which is keeping his own word. God says this is going to happen. Now it's happening. Okay, then you should be worshiping that God. And instead, of course, they turn away from him. So we're in Deuteronomy 28, verse 58. If you are not careful to observe all the words of this law, which are written in this book, to fear this honored and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring extraordinary plagues on you and your descendants, even severe and lasting plagues and miserable and chronic sicknesses. And he will bring back on you all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. Also, every sickness and every plague, which not written in the book of this law, the Lord will bring on you until you are destroyed. Then you shall be left few in number, whereas you were as the stars of the heaven for multitude, because you did not obey the Lord your God. And it came about that as the Lord delighted over you to prosper you and multiply you, so the Lord will delight over you to make you perish and destroy you. And you shall be torn from the land where you are entering to possess it. Real basic. Follow God's law. Follow God's rules. If you don't, he's going to bring plagues on you. He's going to bring sicknesses on you. But look at the language the same way that it was his delight, his plan, his intention to multiply you and to give you health and welfare, to feed you, to keep you safe from the wild animals, to give you peace from all the nations around, the same way that he delighted to do that. If you rebel against him, he delights in defending his own honor, his own holiness, and his own word, and he will destroy you. It is God's purpose to take care of you. And if you follow him, if you keep his law... He will continue to take care of you. And if you rebel against him, the same intention of God that brought about all this pleasure will be turned. And the same pleasure of God will destroy you for his own righteousness sake. That's the God you're dealing with. That's the God of the Bible. It's the only God you find anywhere in the Bible. The God who is perfectly willing not only to demonstrate his grace and his goodness and his long-suffering, he is equally willing to demonstrate his judgment and his righteousness and his holiness, and both of them redound to his glory. So either way, worship him. Either way, he's the only God, and he deserves your worship. So then he goes on. It shall come about that as the Lord delighted over you to prosper you and multiply you, so the Lord will delight over you to make you perish and destroy you, and you shall be torn from the land where you are entering to possess it. Verse 64, moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other of the earth, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, which your fathers have not known. And among those nations you shall find no rest, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot, but there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing of eyes, and despair of soul. So your life shall hang in doubt before you, and you shall be in dread night and day, and you shall have no assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, I would that it were evening, and in the evening you shall say, I would that it were morning, because of the dread of your heart which you dread, and for the sight of your eyes which you shall see. And the Lord will bring you back to Egypt in ships 
by the way, about which I spoke to you, saying, you will never see it again. And there you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but there will be no buyer. Okay, so God was very clear in saying, yes, I delivered you out of Egypt. When you were in Egypt, you were in bondage. So, in Hosea 9, verse 3, it says, They will not remain in the Lord's land, but Ephraim will return to Egypt. And then, and in Assyria, they will eat unclean food. Commentators really fall into two different camps on that particular verse. One way, this is the way that I don't so much agree with or ascribe to, one way that commentators deal with this verse is to say that God here is speaking euphemistically about Assyria when he says Egypt. That it's not that Israel was going back to Egypt in particular, but they were going back into bondage. They were going into bondage in Assyria, and that way it was like going back to Egypt. However, the other approach, and I actually think this is more likely, if you're an Israelite, and remember there's a 10-year span here from the time that Naphtali has been attacked and taken into bondage, and then over the course of the next 10 years you have wars between the Arameans and, and Israel, and then during that time period, if you were smart, you were getting out. Now, you can't go northeast because that is Assyria. That's where the trouble is. And some people, like I mentioned, went back to Judah, which is why in the book of Acts you read about Lydia. Lydia was actually an Ephraimite. And so you do find some folks who went down into Judah. But the only other option you have then is to go south into Egypt. And the same way that Moses said, you'll go into Egypt and you'll sell yourselves, which is what apparently a good many did in order to avoid the Assyrian captivity. They would go south into Egypt and sell themselves as bond servants, as bond slaves. And so either way, they're out of their land. They're out of the land of promise. They're out of the land of milk and honey. Some, a small number, go into Judah. Some, a small number, go into Egypt. As I said earlier, the greater number of them end up going into Assyria. And yet this is exactly what God said would happen to them when he brought them to the land and said, if you don't follow my rules, if you don't follow my law, then I'm going to send you back to Egypt. The very same way that you came, that I said, Moses speaking, that I said, you'll never see that again. If you rebel against God, he'll take you back there. So they will not remain in the Lord's land, but Ephraim will return to Egypt. And in Assyria, they will eat unclean food. Now he's going to talk more about the food and the bread and stuff that they're going to end up eating. Because one of the chief differentiations between Israelites and all the people around them is that they had the dietary rules. And the dietary rules come directly from God. And they had to eat particular foods, and they could not eat other foods because there were particular foods that were considered unclean. And they had to eat those clean foods with clean hands. They had to go through ceremonial washings. And even if they, uh, if they did something like touch a dead body, then they were unclean for seven days. And they had to wait their seven days. They had to wash themselves again and stuff. So there were all these cleanliness rules and all these food rules that were very, very important to distinguishing them as God's people in contradistinction to all the other people on the planet. So God says, when you go into this bondage in Assyria, you're going to eat unclean food which should have just racked their conscience because they'd been eating kosher all this time because nationally they were eating kosher. But now they're going to have to eat unclean foods because that's all there is to eat in Assyria. And again, God is erasing the distinctions between Israel and the foreign nations. 
So he's going to spread them into all the nations, and then they're going to lose their sense of who they are. They're going to lose their cultural distinctions and their dietary distinctions. They're going to lose the way that they worship. You're not going to find Israelites, the northern ten tribes. You're not going to find them with ringlets walking around looking like Orthodox Jews. That's just not how they're going to be. They're going to lose these distinctives that made them separate from all the other people. In Assyria, you will eat unclean food. They will not pour out libations of wine to the Lord. There were particular sacrifices that God required of Israel. Again, distinctions. They had to bring the first of their wine. It was called a drink offering. And it was taking the best of the, of the new wine and pouring it out before God. A demonstration that it came from God and as a sacrifice, a way of acknowledging that it's God who provides. And he says, and they will not pour out their libations of wine to the Lord. So they're not going to eat the way they've always eaten. They're not going to sacrifice the way that they've always sacrificed. And then their sacrifices will not please him. And this real interesting phrase, their bread will be like mourner's bread. All who eat of it will be defiled. There is a rule in the Deuteronomical law. Basically, the rule is, if a man is in a tent where another man dies, well, then the man who's alive is unclean for seven days, just because you were in the place where that happened. Well, of course, Israel had funerals. When somebody would die, they would have a meal, and they would have people over, and they would mourn the dead. And the food that they ate there was mourner's bread. And the mourner's food, the mourner's bread, meant that they had been in the immediate vicinity of a dead body, and that made them unclean. So God says everything you eat while you're in Assyria is going to be mourner's bread so that you're permanently unclean. Really, something. God is really creating a separation between himself and his holiness and his rules and his feasts and really just telling Israel all those things that made you separate and different from the other nations. Mm -hmm. We're just going to eradicate. So then verse 5, well, no, there's more to verse 4. They will not pour out libations of wine to the Lord. Their sacrifices will not please him. Their bread will be like a mourner's bread, and all who eat of it will be defiled. For their bread will be for themselves alone, and it will not enter the house of the Lord. Not only did they have to bring their drink offerings and their grain offerings, but they also had a table that was known as the table of show bread. And it was bread that you would put before God that was changed every Sabbath day by the priests. All of these distinctives of worship that belong to Israel, God is one by one taking away from them and saying, you won't have any means to worship me. Whether it's drink offering, grain offering, food, bread, even when you eat bread, this mourner's bread, it's going to make you unclean and it's not for me, it's for you. And there's nothing you can do to get to the house of the Lord anymore. You can't worship me anymore. Oh, this fellowship. Right. The, the fellowship between them has been broken. What will you do on the day of the appointed feast and on the day of the feast of the Lord? What are you going to do? There's God's question. Okay, because the rule is you have to go to Jerusalem. The rule is three times a year, every man that can travel has to come to Jerusalem. And you come up there with your food and you come and have a feast before the Lord. It's a set time, an appointed time of God. And you can't worship me and you can't come to my temple. And what are you going to do when your feasts come? So then verse 6. For behold, they will go because of destruction. Egypt will gather them up. Memphis will bury them. Weeds will take over their treasures of silver and thorns will be in their tents. So it just keeps going from bad to worse. Some are in the Assyrian captivity, the ones who go into Egypt. It says Egypt's just going to swallow them up. And they're going to die there. Memphis will bury them. Memphis is just another name for Egypt. They're going to die and be buried there, essentially forgotten out of their homeland. The days of punishment have come, says verse 7. The days of retribution have come. Let Israel know. 
The prophet is a fool. The inspired man is demented. Because of the grossness of your iniquity and because your hostility is so great. Now he began by saying, you have played the harlot and you have forsaken God. Now God equates their forsaking him with open hostility against him. There's no middle ground here. There's nowhere where God says, you know, you can kind of worship me. It's okay. You can kind of like me and then like other gods and you can kind of. He says, if you belong to me, if I have separated you to myself and you go chasing after other gods, that is hostile to me. But think about that really. Think about the equation that God has set up, the example that he has designed here. He has said that they're chasing after other gods is a form of harlotry. And any man would agree that if his wife is off chasing other lovers for money, if his wife is suddenly being a harlot against him, that that is hostile to the relationship. That is difficult to cope with. And so God says, your open hostility against me is the reason that I'm doing these things. And then he says, the prophets now, the prophets that are telling you it's going to be okay, all that, they're fools. This is all going to happen against you. Inspired men have become demented because of the grossness of your iniquity and because of the hostility against me. It's so great. Ephraim was a watchman with my God. Ephraim was a prophet, and yet the snare of a bird catcher is in all his ways. It's a really great Hebraism. What it means is the way that a bird catcher would work is that he would use a net or a snare to catch birds with. And he says there was a time when Ephraim and the leaders in Ephraim and the prophets in Ephraim used to speak for me. And they were like a watchman on the wall warning people about me. But now they've become like a bird catcher's net and they catch people and drag them into their trap. Ephraim was a watchman with my God and a prophet. And yet the snare of a bird catcher is in all his ways. And there is only hostility in the house of his God. They have gone deep into depravity, as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity, and he will punish their sins. Go to Judges 19 for a moment. Go to Judges 19, and we'll read a little bit about why God would make a reference to Gibeah. Judges 19, we'll start around verse 12. They've gone deep into depravity as in the days of Gibeah. This was a time and a place when a real depravity broke out in Israel. Judges 19, starting in verse 12. Gosh, it's kind of hard to start there, but there was a man who was who was not willing to spend the night. He arose, he departed to a place that is Jerusalem. When they were near Jebus, which is Jerusalem, the day was almost gone. The servant said to his master, please come in and let us turn into this city of the Jebusites. And we'll spend the night there. However, his master said to him, this is verse 12, we will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who are not the sons of Israel, but we'll go on as far as Gibeah. And he said to his servant, come and let us approach one of these places and we will spend the night in Gibeah or Ramah. So they passed along and they went on their way and the sun set on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside in order to enter and lodge in Gibeah. And when they entered, they sat down in the open square of the city for no one took them into his house to spend the night. Then behold, an old man was coming out of the field from his work at evening, and now the man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was staying in Gibeah, but the men of the place were Benjamites. And he lifted up his eyes, and he saw the traveler in the open square of the city, and the old man said, where are you going, and where did you come from? And he said, we are passing from Bethlehem in Judea, in Judah, 
to the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim, for I am from there. And I went to Bethlehem in Judah, but I am now going to my house, and no man will take me in to his house. Yet there is both straw and fodder for our donkeys, and also bread and wine for me, your maidservant, and the young man who is your servant's. And there is no lack of anything. And the old man said, peace to you. Only let me care for all your needs. However, do not spend the night here in the open square. So he took him into his house and he gave the donkeys fodder. And they washed their feet and they ate and drank. And while they were making merry, behold, the men of the city, certain worthless fellows, surrounded the house, pounding the door. And they spoke to the owner of the house, the old man, saying, Bring out the man who came into your house that we may have relations with him. Sound familiar? This is like Sodom type stuff. Can you see why God was kind of upset? Then the man, the owner of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my fellows, please do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not commit this act of foolishness. Here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. Please let me bring them out that you may ravish them and do to them whatever you wish. But do not commit this act of folly against this man. But the men would not listen to him. So the men seized his concubine and brought her out to them. And they raped her and they abused her all night until morning. And then let her go at the approach of dawn. And as the day began to dawn, the woman came and fell down at the doorway of the man's house where her master was until daylight. And when her master arose in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, then behold, his concubine was laying at the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, get up and let us go. But there was no answer. And then he placed her on the donkey and the man arose and he went to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife and he laid hold of his concubine and he cut her in 12 pieces limb by limb and sent her throughout the territory of Israel. And it came about that all who saw it said, nothing like this has ever happened or been seen from the day when the sons of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel and speak up. Well, as you know, that that turns into a big war between the various different houses. Okay, so this is why God says, okay, remember that moment in Gibeah that was unlike anything that had ever happened in Israel? Remember that thing? Okay, that's what you're like now. That's the reference to Gibeah. You have gone deep into depravity, as in the days of Gibeah. And he will remember their iniquity, and he will punish their sins. Then he describes the way that he found them. Originally, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. It was a good thing. I saw your forefathers like the earliest fruit on a fig tree in its first season. When I found you, you were a good thing, and you bore fruit. But they came to Baal Peor. And they devoted themselves to shame, and they became as detestable as that which they loved. As for Ephraim, their glory will fly away like a bird, and no birth, no pregnancy, and no conception. The God who's in charge of birth, the God who's in charge of children, the God who gives children as a gift is able to say to Ephraim, here's part of my judgment against you. The judgments just keep coming. Part of my judgment is no more children for you. And though they bring up their children when they go into Assyria, though they bring their children with them, yet I will bereave them until not a man is left. Yes, woe to them indeed. Look at the next phrase. Woe to them indeed when I depart from them. The ultimate judgment is when God just separates himself and says, I've departed from you. No longer going to protect you. No longer going to provide for you. No longer going to give you wine and fruit and food and grain. I'm no longer going to protect you from your enemies. I'm no longer going to give you children. And all these things are going to befall you because I, your God, have departed from you. The ultimate judgment against any people is when God withdraws himself. He says, I'm not with you anymore. 
And then nothing good ever comes of that. People gravitate into their natural depravity when left to themselves. And so God says, Woe to them indeed when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, is planted like a pleasant meadow, like Tyre. He's talking geographically about where Ephraim is. It was a good land. It was a land of milk and honey. It was right on the shore there of the Mediterranean. That's why shipping areas like Tyre existed. They had access to the ships of Tarshish and the various different merchants that would come and bring all the goods from around the the whole area of the known world. They were planted in a perfect place. Ephraim, as I have seen, is planted in a pleasant meadow like Tyre, but Ephraim will bring out his children for slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what wilt thou give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. All their evil is at Gilgal. Indeed, I came to hate them there. The pulpit commentary has this to say about the reference to Gilgal, and I think they sum it up well. In the phrase, all their wickedness is in Gilgal, for there I hated them. The alternate translation is, there I conceived hatred against them. Gilgal has been the scene of many mercies. That's where the rite of circumcision, the seal of the Abrahamic covenant, was recommissioned after its omission during the sojourn in the wilderness. During the 40 years they were in the wilderness, they had stopped circumcising. But when they got to Gilgal, God reestablished that covenant with them. That's where they kept the Passover that also had been intermitted from its second observance at Sinai, and then it was kept again at Gilgal. That's where the 12 memorial stones were set up for the 12 tribes of Israel. After they crossed the Jordan, it was set up at Gilgal. That's where the captain of the host of the Lord appeared to Joshua and reassured him of divine protection there at Gilgal. That's where the tabernacle had stood before it had been removed to Shiloh. Yet in that very place, a place of such blessing and solemn covenanting, that very place had become the scene of idolatry and iniquity. And the wickedness of Israel had been concentrated there as in a focus. It was there that Israel rejected God's theocracy in its spiritual form and instead wanted a king. It was there that the first plague's pot of ruin had been contracted. It's there that the calf worship had been developed. It is there that the form of civil government had been shaped according to their own erring fancy and their mode of religious worship had been corrupted. Thus Gilgal had become the center of all their sin, but the scene of mercy became like the source of wrath, for there God's fatherly love was turned by Israel's wickedness into hatred. It's a good summation. And so God brings this up to them because they know it. They understand the significance of Gilgal. All their evil is at Gilgal. Indeed, I came to hate them there. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They will bear no fruit, and even though they bear children, I will slay the precious ones of their womb. Isn't this a good place, perhaps, to insert a um, judgment against America and the way we are slaying the fruit of our womb? Mm -hmm. I won't go too far into it outside of saying, remember that the things that are happening right now in the world have a spiritual basis. If you don't view the world from a biblical point of view, you won't understand the things that are going on, including the fact that we are eliminating huge swaths of the next generation. And the fruit of our womb is being destroyed collectively all over our nation as God continues to withdraw, as God backs away. And as we see America getting progressively worse and worse which is going to culminate in 
as Israel continues in their lost condition and as the Jews of the world continue in their political and anti-Christian motivations, there is still going to be a time of punishment coming. God is still going to deal with Israel and is once and for all going to deal with their rebellion in a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again. That's still coming. But then, as all the prophets say, once God has done that, then God is going to turn back to Israel. And just like at the beginning of the book of Hosea, he's going to build a hedge around her, take her from her lovers, and bring her back. The same way that he said, here, I'll put her out of my house, he's going to bring her back into his house and keep her and change her and change her heart and establish with her the new covenant. Because the old covenant didn't do it. The covenant at Sinai wasn't able to sustain them to hold them, to keep them from wandering away from him. So since that covenant didn't do it, what's he going to do? Jeremiah 31, behold, I will form a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with them when I took them by the hand out of Egypt, which covenant they broke. That's all very significant language. He is making a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah because the old covenant didn't do it. But Hosea says, Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They will bear no fruit. Even though they bear children, I will slay the precious ones of their womb. My God will cast them away because they have not listened to him, and they will be wanderers among the nations. Go to the book of Ezekiel. I won't leave you on that rather uh, sad note. But I will show you yet again as we've done week by week here, both the bad news and the good news concerning Israel. Go to Ezekiel 39. You'll notice how many passages we keep finding that predict a restoration of Israel. It's unavoidable. It just keeps coming. It just keeps coming. You have to deny way too much of the Bible to deny that God intends to restore Israel. The first part of chapter 39 of Ezekiel has to do with Gog and Magog and ultimately God destroying them. This is all end time stuff. By the time that that punishment, that war is over, starting in verse 11, it will come about on that day that I shall give Gog a burial ground there in Israel, the valley of those who pass by east of the sea. And it will block off the passerbys, so they will bury Gog there with all his multitude, and it will be called the Valley of Haman Gog. For seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. Even all the people of the land will bury them, and it will be to their renown on the day that I glorify myself, declares the Lord God. And they will set apart men who will constantly pass through the land, burying those who were passing through, even those left on the surface of the ground, in order to cleanse it. And at the end of seven months, they will make a search. And as those who pass through the land pass through and anyone sees a man's bone, then they will set a marker by it until the barriers have buried it in the valley of Haman Gog. And even the name of the city will be Hamona, and they will cleanse the land. And as for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to every kind of bird and every kind of beast of the field and say, assemble and come together from every side to my sacrifice, which I am going to sacrifice for you as a great sacrifice on the mountain of Israel that you may eat flesh and drink blood. And you shall eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of the princes of the earth as though they were rams and lambs and goats and bulls, all of them fatlings of Bashan. So you will eat fat until you're glutted and you will drink blood until you are drunk from my sacrifice, which I have sacrificed for you. The kings of the earth that come against Israel and Gog and Magog and all their armies in this final conflagration, God says he's going to make them a feast for the carrion birds. And the birds are going to be glutted on the fat and the blood 
of the enemies of Israel. Mm. By the way, Jesus is going to make reference to that. And then in the book of Revelation, you see that exact language picked up again. So we know what the time frame is here. The time frame is end times. This is eschatological stuff. Verse 20, and you will be glutted at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men, and all the men of war, declares the Lord God, and I shall set my glory among the nations, and all the nations will see my judgment, which I have executed, and my hand, which I have laid on them, and the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God from that day onward. And the nations will know that the house of Israel went into exile for their iniquity, because they acted treacherously against me, and I hid my face from them. So I gave them into the hand of their adversaries, and all of them fell by the sword. According to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions, I dealt with them, and I hid my face from them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Now I shall restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I shall be jealous for my holy name. And they shall forget their disgrace and all their treachery which they perpetrated against me when they live securely on their own land with no one to make them afraid. When I bring them back from the peoples and gather them from the lands of their enemies, then I shall be sanctified through them in the sight of many nations. And then they will know that I am the Lord their God because I made them go into exile among the nations. And then I gathered them again to their own land and I will leave none of them there any longer. And I will not hide my face from them any longer for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord. Is that clear? Do we need to comment on that? I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to reestablish them. I'm not going to hide my face from them any longer. But when does that happen? Chronologically, according to Ezekiel, it happens after the Gog-Magog war, the Armageddon. It happens after God has dealt with all of their enemies and they've been seven months cleaning up the bones when God then is going to reestablish Israel. So the final reestablishment of Israel is the result of this time of trouble coming such as never was or ever would be again. And then after that has been accomplished, the final punishment of Israel, then God's going to reestablish them and do all these things he promised and bring them back from all the places that he scattered them, bring them back into their land. And I love the phrase, I'll hide my face from them no longer. When we read it in Hosea 9, God said, I'll depart from them. I'm going to back off them. But then God says, I'm going to reestablish them and then never depart from them anymore. And all of that is in the Bible. Not just the first half where he does all the punishing of Israel stuff, but all the restoring Israel stuff is equally in the Bible. You can't truncate it, and you can't avoid it. I'll no longer hide my face from them. Why? Because I'll pour out my spirit on them. It's the same thing that the new covenant says. God says, I'm going to place my spirit, my law, inside them. I'm going to change them from within, you know, the same way he did Carol. He's going to do it to Israel. And I think if he can do it to one person, is it too difficult for him to do it to a bunch of people? 3,000 Jews on the day of Pentecost. 5,000 a week later. Was that difficult? Is there a cutoff number? Is there a place at which God says, too many, can't do it now? Or can he, in fact, gather his Israelites, gather these people who have lost their heritage, lost their sense of who they are, are wandering among the Gentile nations? Can he find them, let's say, 144,000 of them, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes? Can he put a stamp on them and says, you're mine? Can he regather Israel back to their land and establish them? Well, yeah, he did it once. Why can't he do it again? The difference will be that this time it won't be based in the old covenant, it'll be based in the new covenant that includes God putting his spirit in them. Zechariah says, they're going to look on him whom they pierced, and they're going to weep like a mother weeping over their only child. They're going to recognize their Messiah. 
They're going to have the Spirit of God. They're going to be redeemed and reestablished in Christ because all the promises of God in him are yea and amen. So we're not talking about two different ways of redemption or two different ways of salvation, but we are talking about distinction between the church and Israel. And why are we making that distinction? Because the Bible makes that distinction over and over and over again. Right? Okay. Right. right. Any questions? Did you enjoy that? Yeah. Isn't the Bible fun? Mm-hmm. It's so engaging. It's so interesting. And the more you get a hold of it, the more you go, that's why the world's like it is. Okay, this really is about God's plan for the church and for Israel. And everything else that happens in human history is about that. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.